hope you're hungry. The table is set. Join us for another cosmic feast. Welcome back, everybody. Season two, episode one. Uh, it's been a long time coming. We have missed you. We have missed. Yeah, so I've missed the part of myself that does this. I don't think it's healthy to only read about aliens and the supernatural. <laughs> I think before the show came into being, before the show was even mentioned or pitched to you or, or anybody, I was reading a lot of these books all the time. And so with the show, now there's like a healthy wave of like, we read this stuff, we absorb it, and then we go back to our lives and worry about yeah. more more lovely things like World War Three <laughs> and, uh, oh and our personal relationships and stuff. Today for season two, episode one, we're going to be covering uh, what happened at Roswell. We're going to be drawing primarily and singularly from the book The Day After Roswell. It's a book by Philip Corso and William J. Burns. This book has always intrigued me because of the title and because of its reputation. I always kind of reserve this book as like, when we begin to breach this topic, let's start with this book and take it from there. And guess what? After reading this book, that is a damn good idea. We'll cover who everybody is here. Basically, uh, Philip J. Corso, he was in army intelligence. He joined the army in 1942. He served in Europe which he talks about. He's American. Basically what we have with this book, the reason it's such a good jumping off point for really the entire study of UFOs, let alone Roswell, is that this is a book that covers what happened on the other side of the table as far as the government is concerned with Roswell and with aliens. When the government became started to take this subject seriously and when they started to apparently recover not only alien craft, but bodies, and started gathering information. So this this book gives you names and dates and military installations. This book gives you context for who reported to the scene in terms of the military, who they served, who was in charge of the plan to start pretty much the concealment of all of this information. Who, like who was pulling the strings? Like so much of this gets reserved and, and thrown into this bin of like, oh, the evil government and they the Project Blue Book was bullshit and all this stuff. And I think that's really good. Like in a way, that's kind of what we were breaching with with the book UFOs that we covered, where it was kind of Leslie King, kind of an, an amazing investigative journalist starting from scratch, kind of doing research on the topic. And in that book, which was written, a lot of it was written from the perspective of army generals and air force people, airline people. You sort of have the beginnings of the government perspective, but you don't get in as far as learning why they covered everything up and what their tactics were and what they were doing. This is, this is from the perspective of Corso, who was in the right place at the right time, in terms of army intelligence and can explain to you what the government's perspective was when this happened. And he wasn't- So just, 
sorry, just to confirm, you're saying that Corso was the one who was there or he got the information? He wasn't at Roswell, but he was so well connected within the military. He actually was stationed at a at an army base close to Roswell when they brought in some of some of the stuff that they found there. And he has an experience mm. that he tells about finding one of the bodies there, which we'll get into. But he's he was basically working for the Pentagon. It was about 1961. And so he, he was tasked by a general to begin reverse engineering this information. It was a while after Roswell. So in a way, he's kind of looking back with all of his knowledge and everything that he ended up learning in the end. He kind of writes this book about what he knows about who showed up, what he knows from talking to people about who showed up that day, where that information went. In other words, he's claiming that he was one of the architects of what basically was done with all of that stuff, what's done with all hmm. the retrieval. Even though retrieved. he didn't get involved until later. And used reverse engineering, you said, to figure exactly. out what happened? Huh. How intriguing. And there's someone else that is the, the who was there in charge, uh, a general, Nathan Twining, who was a key figure in this, according to this book, that was the general sort of, that began the process of what to do with the information. So we'll, we'll break it down. It's, it's a little complex, but in terms of let, let's break down the characters as far as Philip J. Corso, who he is, he joined the army in 1942. He served in army intelligence in Europe. He talks a lot about his, his responsibility in army intelligence and how sneaky it is kind of like mm. hiding information. Uh, there's so much in this book about, the way government officials hide information from each other's branches of government. And with, with UFO technology, that's, that's something super important. So it says 1945. I, I just want to go through this for a second because it kind of shows you that this isn't a book written by just anybody, you know, and these are not just anybody. The, these figures are real figures that were in the military that did a lot of accomplished a lot of things. So for them to come out. So there's a forward here by Senator Storm Thurmond. Anyway, the Senator vouches for Corso, even if this book is hard to believe, and I will say that it is hard to believe all of this, because in a way, it's like a treasure trove of information that con contextualizes everything you've ever wondered, everything we kind of know about or suspected about the Majestic 12, about, about how, they how they hid all this information within the government, how it went into secret areas of the government that even government officials on, on the civilian side didn't know about. Like It goes into the reverse engineering of technology that you've heard through the grapevine for so long that like fiber optics and different things come from alien technology, that our a lot of our cell phone technology comes from there. It goes into all of it, but it just kind of lays it out in such amazing and yet convenient detail. But even if you want to be super skeptical about this book, like you can't deny the credentials that these people have. And you can't deny that a lot of it is just sort of maybe the simplest explanation is true. You know, the, the fact that the army released, uh, the army actually admitted that they had found a, a downed flying saucer first and then they tried to cover it up later 
There was this interesting story in terms of intelligence with the Soviet Union. The reason the Soviet Union knew that we had found a down aircraft, alien aircraft, was because we, we tried to cover it up the next day with a different news mm. report. The fact that we said that it was an alien craft and the next day we said it was a balloon showed that we were covering something up. So even if, even if you want to be skeptical about this, there's so much here that we can learn from. There's so much here that we can learn from as far as there's so many references too. like we can, you can individually research, like who was there? Who are these generals are talking about? Would they have been in a position to do what he's saying? Would this have been the person in charge? The 509th infantry is the infantry that responds to is the is the group of officers that comes down to lock down the site you know would they have been there he names the bases where everything would be going to in texas and ohio and kansas like would these things have been going there like this is a great reference book if you're interested in the subject and you want to take it seriously to to take a look at these names and do deeper research and it's not our goal here um to prove to you that aliens exist like we're not trying to prove anything to, to anybody if you want to be skeptical you, you're going to be skeptical no matter what happens you know so no matter what i say so for me to sit here and it would be a completely different show in order to organize evidence and to try to continue to prove 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 but one thing that i've realized is that when you read enough of these sources of reputable researchers and people in the military and stuff, a lot of it starts to connect. A lot of mm -hmm. it starts to connect. If, if we had found down aircraft, if we had gone down the road of starting to research this stuff, it does make sense that at some point they would have hired somebody like Bob Lazar to come in. And they've hired a lot of Bob Lazar since to come in into these programs. And, and yeah, somebody somewhere is seeing these aircraft and trying to study them and trying to reverse engineer them. There's so many revelations with this story. And, and my point was just that like, when you start connecting these dots, a lot of this reminded me of John Keel as well, because John Keel has these funny stories where he would call up government officials and he would drill them for information and he would frustrate them. And he would say that these people know something, they're hiding it, but they have this policy of ridiculing and pretending like they don't. And Keel wasn't stupid. Keel knew what they were doing. But this book actually explains exactly why they were doing that. So it's the other side of the desk completely. So Philip J. Corso, 1945, he arranged for the safe passage of 10,000 Jews, World War II. So he was involved in World War II in Europe. He was a personal emissary to Giovanni Battista Montini. Here we go, season two. Uh, Twice as good at pronouncing Pope names. Vatican, later Pope Paul VI. He, during the Korean War, and Corso references all this stuff. I'm going over it now because I'm not going to be going too deep into Corso's military background when we're talking about the subjects because there's, there's too much to cover. I want you guys to know who wrote this book. Like He was in the Korean War from 1950 to 1953. He, he went to intelligence school and he was he was an intelligence officer. He was basically an Ivy League military officer who just kept getting promoted within the ranks of intelligence. So that kind of led him to the Pentagon that led him to the White House first with Eisenhower, led him to the Pentagon later with General Trudeau. Corso performed intelligence duties after the around the Korean War under General Douglas MacArthur at later hearings of 1992 Senate Select Committee Corso testified that
that he believed hundreds of American POWs were abandoned at these camps. Oh yeah, so there's this there's a lot of stories that he has about how the Soviets had infiltrated the government and how like a lot of our decisions The US government? Yeah, the US government. And it's really interesting with, with what's going on now in the world to see the deep and dirty and complicated relationship that our country has with the Soviet Union and with Russia. Like just on an just from an intelligence perspective, like this idea that we're just guessing each other's decision making now for generations experiencing the conflict now, like this goes back so many years of of trying to out outgun each other after World War II and outthink each other and 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 in some cases intelligence was like one group of people basically that were working together on both sides giving each other information and everything so they were he makes a crazy point to say that they were more loyal to each other sometimes than they were to their own other branches of government um, but in this sense. in this case it, with the Korean War he was kind of referring to how how people had infiltrated the government and had made decisions that weren't good for American officers. But in 1960, in about 1953 to 1957, he was on the staff of President Eisenhower's National Security Council. And in 1961, he became the chief of the Pentagon's, here's the key, 1961, he becomes the chief of the Pentagon's foreign technology desk at Army Research and Development, working under Lieutenant General Arthur Trudeau. Wow. And so this is this was with Eisenhower in office. So he was pretty directly related to the president. He worked he worked with Eisenhower and he worked for the Pentagon under General Arthur Trudeau at the Foreign Technology Army and Research Development. R&D R&D, you know, that's where, that's where apparently in Batman begins, uh, Batman inherits his Batmobile, you know, our R&D is the research and development branch of the military. It's where it's in foreign technology is where you're basically studying other countries, helicopters, aircrafts, like intelligence that you've gathered. And you're saying, why don't we have toys like these? Like, what can we do? How can we develop things better and faster? So you're saying the Batmobile came from Roswell intelligence aircraft. The Batmobile <laughs> is directly is, is an alien craft for sure. Not the new that one though. Sense. The new the new Batmobile. The new, the new Batmobile is a whole different story. It's like a muscle car. That's a twenty that's a twenty fifteen Nissan Nissan Altima. Is it? <laughs> no. I have a couple questions. When was this book made and published? I think this book was published in nineteen ninety seven. Okay. And Philip J. Corso is still alive? He died a year, I think a year after this book was published. Oh wow. Okay. So this was written toward the end of his life? towards the very end of his life and you'll see this and much after a lot of his active duties way after because they're yeah. sworn to secrecy with this stuff really you're looking right. at and we've seen this with other things so then really did he die or was he killed after he published this book for releasing <laughs> private information ba -ba -bum. well no i think he died but there this is a pattern with a lot of uh army navy generals officers, people that were sworn to secrecy, that were threatened that they would be killed. I mean, they just would never, this guy would never betray based on like kind of his integrity as an officer and kind of the way he writes about his responsibility as an officer. Like you just would never betray your oath to the government. 
is just not what you do, especially not at these high levels. I mean, it's, it's 101 for people like this to, to, to believe in that. But towards the end of their life, it seems like they have a change of heart and maybe it's not a change. Maybe it's something that was always weighing on them where they always wanted to tell the American people the truth. In fact, there's a conversation with Truman that's really interesting that he brings up. And you kind of have to just kind of suspend your disbelief. Look, with any researcher or writer, anybody who's writing accounts of things that happened, if they're telling you like, this is the best thing that I know, I learned this from these people, I learned this, you kind of have to suspend your disbelief and just go with like, what if this happened? You know, what if these conversations happened? Because I believe that this guy knew, knows what he's talking about. I believe he was connected to tons of officers. He was not just an army. He was not just in the army. He was, he was a ranking official that rose through the ranks, obviously worked with presidents and, and generals and, and he tells you, like, this is what I know about this conversation. Basically, when they were speaking to, to General, when they were speaking to President Truman, Truman asked everybody in the room, what about the American people? Like, one of his last questions when, they, when, when General Twining decided to basically hide everything from everybody. What do you do with recovered alien spacecraft if you're in the military? Mm -hmm. Like, it's... It's not so easy as like, tell the public the truth and it's no problem. You know, it's not th that decision. It's great for marketing though. Alien burgers at McDonald's, you know. <laughs> well, that stuff was happening anyway. You had lots of science fiction movies happening and lots of, there was science fiction fever for, for that kind of stuff anyway. These guys were worried about like this information leaking to other governments the Soviets, the, the, they were trying to figure out, you know, how do we save this information from going to the wrong hands within our government, within other governments? How do we even tell the American people that some, there's a threat if we can't do anything to stop the threat? If you don't tell people that there is a threat, then there's no pressure to deal with it. If you told everybody, like, guess what? Aliens are mutilating cattle. They're kidnapping people. They're doing all this messed up stuff to us and there's nothing we can do about it. What would you say? You would be like, well, what can you do to protect us? Like, what are you doing to protect us? That's like a, that's like a main concern. But instead they chose to hide this information. And, and in that conversation with Truman, Truman, it's very pointed. He asks, he says, well, do we ever tell the American people the truth? And there's just like silence. And he's like, he basically explains, it was a very intelligent remark actually, because he was basically saying that if they have this much power to like spy on our technology, to play games with us, with our military aircraft, to abduct people, to do all this crazy stuff, like what's to stop them from landing? And then eventually it's going to come out. Eventually it's just going to come out and there's nothing we're going to be able to say. So at some point, do we tell them first? Or do we wait to tell them later? And the general consensus in the room was that people weren't ready for this, that they had to hide the technology, and that they needed to start preparing a plan for how to deal with all of this. So let's go back to 1947. This was in July. You know, Roswell happened on the 4th of July. Did it really? 4th of July. Seven four four seven. 
It's almost like a faded day. Right before July 4th, around July 1st, there were isolated incidents of unidentified radar blips. There were isolated incidents of unidentified radar blips at Roswell and White Sands that were continuing to increase over the next couple of days. So basically, it was this steady stream of airspace violations. Things that the military was used to. They were used to seeing blips on their radar, things coming in and out of focus, like just crazy, crazy stuff that they had no control over. Radar operators around Roswell noticed that strange objects were turning up and they looked like they were changing shape on the screen itself. July 4th, 1947, that night, while people were enjoying their fireworks, there was there was a thunderstorm that was glowing and growing with intensity. And hmm. shortly before 10 p.m. that evening, that lightning grew more and more intense. Suddenly, something flew over Steve Robinson as he was driving his milk truck along the north route of the city. Robinson tracked the object as it shot across the sky in high speeds. It was described as elliptical and solid, and it wasn't described as what they were seeing on the radar or what they were sometimes used to seeing in the sky, which was a sequence of lights, distant lights. You know, this was like an elliptical solid object, whether it was because of radar or lightning, this craft goes down. At that point in time, um, the military believed that it was a downed enemy aircraft that somehow slipped through the radar defense system in South America or at the Canadian border. 509th was the infantry tasked with responding to this situation. So the 509th infantry, I believe, reported from the Roswell Army airfield. So they were very nearby, like right there. Yes, exactly. Bull Blanchard greenlighted the retrieval mission. Uh, he was a base commander there. You had like a lot of people kind of show up to this site, this crash site. And not only that, but like a lot of witnesses in this area. Like, Did the milkman show up? <laughs> I don't think he showed up personally, but he witnessed it, right? He saw it pass over the sky. So a group of Indian artifact hunters were camping nearby. They saw they oh, they saw light overhead. They heard like what sounded like something was on fire. 509th base commander uh, reported the crash of an unidentified object north and west of Roswell. You had a sheriff Wilcox who dispatched the fire department to the site. So a group of army infantrymen, the 509th, fly down. A, they soar down. They're not soaring or flying. They're driving down, <laughs> right? They have like a couple like trucks. Eagles. They have a couple trucks with them, like the eagles in Lord of the Rings. They fly through the sky. Don't ask <laughs> yeah. me how. Look up. Look it up in the R and D department. It's real. Um, and then you have you have a, a, a sheriff who sends the fire department down there. Steve Arnold riding shotgun in one of the staff cars in the convoy of recovery vehicles for the 509th reaches the crash site first. Then you have all these technicians show up. You have technicians that are like medics and signalmen, radio operators, sentries. You have people showed up because basically they instruct those people to set up floodlights around the entire area. It's, it's like 10 o'clock at night. So they have to light up the place. How else are they going to see what the hell they're dealing with? I think there's one of the newer episodes of the X-Files. They recreate this moment. 
and I don't remember if it takes place at night or not, but it's just so cinematic to think about all of these trucks heading to this crash site and throwing up floodlights. And basically the way Corso describes what he thinks of as having happened based on a lot of witness accounts and people he knows in the military is that you have all these servicemen kind of doing their job. Like you kind of like in catering, right? Like everybody who knows what to do is doing their job, but then you have like the, the actual uh, military just completely dumbstruck and awestruck about what they're yeah. seeing. Because probably most of the people are thinking like, yeah, was was this like a firework that went off and like hit something and knocked something down? Like, you know, because it's just conveniently on the 4th of July. So probably a lot of people who might have seen it in the sky were just like, oh, that was like a firework dud or something that happened. And so a lot, of, you know, everyone's still up in the air of like, what it, what actually is happening here? Why? I mean, I know my job was to told to come out here and put up these floodlights, but what for? <laughs> No one knows yet. But I think that we have animal instincts as human beings that alert us to something very different from ourselves. If you were looking at an alien craft, you would know that there's a possibility we didn't make this because it doesn't look like anything that you've ever seen before. If you were looking at an alien being, like maybe you're biologically, maybe the smell, maybe the sight of it. You know, like we recognize something when it's CGI, we know instantly that it's not real. If you're in, if you're in your backyard and you see, there's somebody with like a fucking axe like behind you, you recognize there's danger. If you see a bear, like the second you sense that there's a bear or a wolf or a, a rabid dog, I'm trying to describe earthly dangers. Like you're gonna, <laughs> you're going to recognize in your soul there's a threat here. There's a there's a different energy signature here. I don't know what it is, but it's different. And that's kind of yeah. like the feeling you get from this site is that all these people know that this is not of this earth. They have, or, or not of this dimension or not of their experience. It's not the Russians. It's not the Germans. It's not the Canadians. It's not the Mer people. You know, <laughs> if we're thinking that the Mer people have UFOs, you know, it's possible. Look into the Stick R&D to the department. oceans, buddies. <laughs> so the person in charge, basically the officer in charge says, Sergeant, I want your men to load up everything that can be loaded on these trucks and basically get out of here. You have intel the first intelligence officer to show up was Jesse Marcel, who lived off the base in Roswell. They basically load up this UFO into the into the back of this truck as fast as they possibly can. But before they get a chance to do that, and it kind of reminds me of that show Chernobyl where I'm like that insanely good show where, where it's like, did they just touch this stuff with their hands? Like, did they not put on gloves or hazmat suits? Like, how did they know this stuff wasn't going to just obliterate all of them? You know, what, what, what if the history of Roswell was just like waves of people showing up and just getting incinerated until finally oh they were like, uh, they were just like, all right, well, I don't know how we're going to explain this giant wave pool of bodies, but we're going to have to send people out down there in suits. But luckily that didn't happen. This is the story of what actually did happen. Maybe <laughs> the firefighters show up, right? And it's just this chaos where there's all these army officials, all these technicians, the firefighters show up and 
the, there, I think there's like the one chief is, I don't know if the chief was there, but there's like one, I think there was one police car. So imagine being the firefighters that show up and the military looks at you. Like they give you like this death stare of like, what the fuck are you doing here? And, <laughs> and, 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 and so one of the firefighters, a Dan Dwyer shows up, he gets off of his truck. There's so much chaos and people looking around, it's dark and he gets out and he starts looking around and this firefighter starts seeing all these like alien pieces, like these alien craft pieces everywhere. Apparently the alien craft didn't, it didn't split off into a ton of pieces. Like it almost looks like part of it came off, but very little. In other words, it wasn't like a, a plane crash where it's just a completely destroyed thing. Like this is like a solid object that fell it looks like obviously the, its inhabitants got out and this firefighter gets to see one of the inhabitants and he describes it. He's like, he thought it was a child. And then he looks and he says, no child has this oversized balloon shaped head. It didn't even look human. Although it had human like features, its eyes were large and dark set apart on each other at a downward slope. Its nose and mouth were especially tiny, almost just like slits and its ears were not much more than indentations on the side of its head. In the glare of the floodlight, Dwyer could see like that these creatures were completely hairless. They looked at him like as if they were helpless. There was, there was a skirmish where one of the alien creatures tried to run, but it was in pain and it, it looked like they could barely breathe. And it tried to run and a, and a group of army officers surrounded it and they shot and killed it. Oh you know? my gosh. And the other ones, they just they just died. I'm not exactly sure if they recovered any alive, alive. I think that's for that's a tale for another like time. Like captured, yeah. Yeah, like captured and like, you know, finally figured out what he breathes and gave him a snack. Except maybe not because they don't look like they 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 didn't <laughs> seem like they ate. Because anything, if you're scared, you must just obliterate it. That's the only option. <laughs> they they like rescue one of them and he they just give him like a juice box and like a granola bar and he's sitting there just like staring at it for hours. So the firefighters are shooed out of there, including this this individual, this Dan Dwyer, and the the army basically picks up the pieces of the craft and and the bodies and they they just drive the hell out of there. They comb the area. They're they're basically like trying to destroy every trace of anything that was there probably unsuccessfully there's they probably couldn't get everything so i would believe like some stories if there was somebody there at the time that could have drove driven through there but they were keeping a close eye on everybody who kind of interacted with the whole situation and there's this even this funny story i forget who it was but of somebody who like a farmer somebody who told the media that he saw this craft at roswell and then later on he shows up with like a brand new car and denies the whole thing. And it was like the military, <laughs> it tries to scare people. It tries to buy people off and it, it maybe it even, I don't know who knows if people even lost their lives to try to silence them from the situation. No it's, wow. it's kind of, it seems like Roswell was really maybe the first or one of the first instances where the government just did not have a game plan for this. They didn't have like a, a booklet somewhere or like a strategy <laughs> or training for this. I'm sure they do now. And I'm sure that they have recovered. I, I kind of believe now when I look back at Bob Lazar's story, the idea that there's multiple craft there 
Like if, if the Roswell plane was downed because of radar and if we have been studying and trying to figure out how to defend ourselves against these craft, then maybe we do have multiple ships, you know? So there's this um, story of a plumbing subcontractor named Roy Danzer, who I think he was like working at the hospital or he was just at the hospital, like nearby Roswell. But he's a plumber? And he's a plumbing subcontractor, right? So okay. he was like working there or something, or I don't remember if he was working there if he was injured and he just had to have something done. It's one or the other. He sees one of the bodies get rolled in. Cause I guess maybe they tried to save these creatures so that they could give them juice boxes and probably right after they shot him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they were, they were like, so Roy Danzer sees under the, like a hospital blanket or whatever, uh, he sees one of these creatures and he describes it. He's like, it was a creature from somewhere else. He's like, it had this pleading look on its face. Its face literally only occupied a small frontal portion of its giant watermelon sized skull. It had this emotion like, and this pain on its face. And he could like kind of sense what it was feeling without the being saying anything he's like it didn't speak it could barely move but he just kind of felt its pain and then immediately the army like finds him like seeing looking at this thing and they 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 grab him they grab him and they threaten him and they basically question him like who the fuck are you like <laughs> what are you doing here so they question him about who he is his daughter Listen, this is the trauma that was caused by the military intimidating people. His daughter, like, had repressed a memory because she was a young child in, in July 1947 because she remembers the military, a military a helmet, a huge helmeted military officer. They probably picked him because it was huge. Comes over to their house, right, and threatens them. And this daughter remembers this. And she also, her, her father talked about this on his deathbed. There's a lot of this happening, like the deathbed confession, you know, and I guess it's up for debate how much stock you can put into that. But I would say that what somebody has to get off their chest before they die is probably very important. So this, this plumbing subcontractor, no, but this guy and his daughter, they, they have a heart to heart shortly before his death where he, where he recounts this whole experience of, of having encountered this being and what happened. And, but the girl discussed that like Dan Dwyer's daughter discussed that she, she was traumatized by this because she remembers the officer leaving and the father telling the mother and the daughter, like, if we talk about any of this, they're going to kill us and we're going to disappear in the desert. I remember when I heard that, I was like, I never had that experience as a kid. I don't like, did you have any kind of traumatic experience as a kid with your family where you thought like there's a possibility of death or there's a possibility of danger? God, no. I mean, we grew up in like nowhere, Iowa. It wasn't the middle of the desert where it was like people just go missing and you never find them. Like, I feel like something like that might be more common out in the desert, like I'm sure like the missing persons cases were much more common and, and it was uh, kind, of, kind of just like another part of their life. <laughs> but like in where I grew up, that would be a huge like, ah, that would be on the news for months. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think people are way more fragile than we think. I think maybe it's it's obvious, but I think people are And only are getting more fragile. <laughs> 
Yeah, like if you like, we think we're all big and tough on social media and everything. But if you like have authority, if the military threatens your life and says you're going to disappear, like I think we know, like there isn't a whole lot of protection around individual civilians. Like maybe if you're in Texas <laughs> and and you're armed to the teeth, but but in terms of like protection from government agencies like if you're being threatened by somebody or some group there's isn't really much you can do about it right especially in today's age like they can track you down easily probably a detective can track you down it doesn't even have to be a government official so if you if you're told not to do something or not to say something it not only probably scares the life out of you and you want nothing to do with that subject right because you want to keep living your life you want to keep enjoying your your food and your games and your friends and your uh, yeah. Broadway Broadway shows <laughs> or whatever whatever you do with your life that makes you happy you want to enjoy those your cats you know you want to enjoy your cats you don't want to <laughs> you don't you don't want to leave your cats motherless or fatherless so <laughs> so so the story we have of Roswell is a fake one that came out afterwards Jesse Marcel posing with fake balloon debris you know this is oh okay so this is the cover-up story you mean not like a fake cover-up story story. yeah yeah because marcel was there he was he was at the debris site he's he's apparently the one kind of tasked with bringing this over to the base commander who ordered the 509 to head over there which is the bull blanchard that we mentioned earlier this is reported to general roger ramey at the fort worth army airfield that Major Jesse Marcel poses with weather balloon debris. And the debris is ridiculous looking. Like, if you see what this looks like, it, I mean, it's such a famous photo of him posing with this, but it doesn't look like anything that anybody is describing that they saw. This is not some giant elliptical thing that crashed and could have made noise and could have caused all this commotion. You wouldn't have you wouldn't have an infantry come out there to retrieve weather balloon. You know, I don't know. It's just so, it's so far fetched what they ended up going with, but (laughs) they, I think they wanted, they wanted to make it look ridiculous. It was the best thing they they could come up with in four days. (laughs) Pretty much, you know, and yeah. And get this, uh, November, 1979, later on in life, Marcel filmed his first interview about this for a documentary called UFOs are real by a Stanton Friedman. Stanton Friedman is a famous UFO researcher. Hmm. So in this documentary, in this documentary, he says, this is what he says about the 1947 press conference with the weather balloon. They wanted some comments from me, but I wasn't at Liberty to do that. He said, so all I could do is keep my mouth shut. General Ramsey, Ramy is the one who discussed it and told the newspapers. I mean, the newsmen, what it was and to forget about it. It was nothing more than a weather observation balloon. Of course, we both knew differently. And that's still what he said during the 76 film, you said? You still wouldn't that, admit that's what anything? He said. Oh, wow. Well, no, he is admitting. He's basically saying he was told to say it was a weather balloon. He wasn't allowed to talk about anything else. Moving on from there, apparently the pieces of this, the, the ship, the bodies, and the debris was shipped out to different places. Some of it was shipped to Fort Worth, Texas, Fort Bliss, Texas. Some of it was flown to Ohio. Some of it was sent to Wright Airfield. Some of it was sent to Fort Riley. 
I guess so they could just get multiple investigators on it and scientists and researchers. I think what what we learned later on, what was kind of going on behind the scenes, and and we're not trying to be an authority. I'm not trying to be an authority on the subject just because I'm talking about it. Like it really is like a lot to kind of dig into and learn about. And for me, this is only the beginning of of what will be more research into this subject. But it it almost seems like they they had something incredibly valuable, like the most valuable thing you could possibly have, right? Technology, would technology and inf- you know information that could change the world, you know, within their own government they divided it up, I guess, so that different branches of the government, the army, because because you have the air force that wants that information because they want to know how the hell this thing flies. Yeah, and how it got past radar. Or- yeah, can we make something that flies that fast? Can we make something that that can run circles around our pilots and our radar and, and basically make our planes look like a joke, you know? <laughs> and then you have the army that wants to know what technology we have for weapons, you know, and things like that. You have the Navy that wants to know, you know, how can any of this be applied to submarines or... <laughs> or Remember, um, no more people were involved, so the Navy doesn't have to get involved either. We don't know about the covert mer people. <laughs> you know, there's so many reports of uh, UFOs being able to dive into the water, which I think is super trippy. Um, so that that kind of brings into the Navy has their own experiences, especially with submarines, yeah, um, of and helicopters and sort of observing the water of seeing ships just fly into the water without making any noise, any sound, any trace. That was something that was brought up recently with commander Fravor, who was the air force pilot, the most, one of the most more recent sightings and who, who recovered that military footage, you know, that came out a, a while ago, he was on Rogan's podcast and he, he was explaining how they saw something underwater, you know, and it was big. It's a bit nutty, but basically Corso wasn't there, but he was at a base called Fort Riley in Texas. And he recounts this story of like when some of the objects from Roswell were brought to this base, he was the commander in charge at night. And there was this commotion happening. And he describes a story that would chill him for the rest of his life. Brownie has seen this 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 alien body and he like even though he's totally not allowed to go in there and he's not allowed to be he's supposed to be outside of this military base he's supposed to be guarding outside but he's inside and he's calling out to Corso to alert him to something he just saw but he's like super freaked out and in secret Major Corso a voice hissed out of the darkness it had an edge of terror and excitement to it What the hell are you doing in there, Brownie? I began cussing out as the figure peeked out at me from behind the door. Have you gone off your rocker? This better be good. Now you get out here where I can see you. Brownie popped his head out from behind the door. You know what's in here? Brownie, you know you're not supposed to be in there. Get out here and tell me what's going on. He stepped out and front of the inside door even the shadow he could see his face his face was dead pale just as if he'd seen a ghost you won't believe this i don't believe it and i just saw it what are you talking about the guys who offloaded those deuce and a halves 
They told us to brought these boxes up from Fort Bliss from some accident out in New Mexico. Yeah, so what? Well, they told us it was all top secret, but they looked inside anyway. Everybody down there did when they were loading the trucks. So... This is a guy, he goes into this long explanation about how Corso was in this bowling league and how even though he was like a high-ranking officer, he was in a bowling league with other officers. So he had more of like a friendly relationship with the officers, even though they didn't kind of like go out drinking and hanging out and talking about their wives or girlfriends and stuff like there was still a professional relationship there but he he goes into this whole story about like how he knows these guys in the context of this situation where he was stationed on this base so brownie he had this relationship with brownie brownie tells him to look inside of the shipment that came in from roswell so corso looks in there and says that it's like nothing he's ever seen before nothing from this planet Brownie Waits takes up position outside of the door, basically to guard, and he goes in there to look through the boxes. There's about 30-odd wooden crates nailed shut and stacked together against the far wall of the building. The light switches were the push type, so he didn't know whether to trip the switch or which switch to put on, so he just used, Corso just uses his flashlight, stumbles around through the darkness, starts pulling apart the nails on one of the boxes. It looks like a like tiny little wooden coffin kind of and he like opens it up and inside he sees a thick glass container and submerged in a thick light blue liquid almost as uh, a liquid almost as heavy as like a gelling solution for diesel fuel the objects like floating in this solution it's suspended it's not sitting on the bottom with the fluid over the top is this soft shiny skin like the underbelly of a fish at first, Corso thinks it's like a dead child for some reason, right? I mean, this is the freaking military, like it could be, it's, you would not think it's an alien, right? You would think it's a human first. Yeah. You'd first be like, this is a tiny, it's a tiny person. Like it's obviously a dead child for some reason or something, but it wasn't a child. It was a four foot human shaped figure with arms. It had bizarre looking four fingered hands. There was no thumb. It had thin legs and feet and an oversized incandescent light bulb shaped head. I don't know what's more flattering for them to describe it as watermelon shaped or incandescent. I think incandescent light bulb shape is kind of a good description because you think of what that looks like. like and it's, it's a very, very particular shape. <laughs> yeah. He cringes at first. He had the urge to pull off the top of the container and touch the gray skin. He couldn't tell whether it was skin or what, because it had a very thin one piece head to toe fabric also covering the flesh. So he saw like this little bit of fabric. He saw that skin. He said the eyeballs must've been rolled back to the top of his head because he couldn't see any pupils or irises. There was no indication of the cheeks had no definition. There were no eyebrows. There was no facial hair. It was not a, an alien with a beard, <laughs> a Damn. little goatee. It wasn't the skateboarding type. <laughs> it had a flat, tiny slit for a mouth. He, he looked for any kind of paperwork. He looked for documentation because I think part of him wanted to really believe that this was like some 
he he honestly he he says his thoughts were like he basically tried as hard as he could to imagine what this could be that's not an alien like he was thinking like maybe this was something from hiroshima maybe it was some sort of a nazi experiment or some sort of a government experiment of some kind or some sort of a mutation of some kind but again i think that his instinct told him chilled him you know that told him he was looking at something legitimately just different he finds basically some paperwork that only says that it was something it was an inhabitant of a craft that crash landed in roswell new mexico it had a routing manifest for the creature it was logged in by an officer at the air material command at Wright field so that is his experience with this he puts it away he doesn't talk about it he doesn't even want to think about it again he does not want to think about this ever again. He, he, he would never bring this up to anybody because he said that in the military, you do not ask questions about a damn thing. It's not your job to ask a question. It's not, it's not the way that they behave in the military. In the military, if somebody asks you something, then you answer a question. You don't start asking, hey, what's over here in this box? Like, uh, where are you guys going? You know, what, what is this? <laughs> is this going to change the world? Are we going to hide it? You know, so he never, he never really, as far as his career and everything, and he wasn't supposed to look in there, even though he had authority to because he was the ranking officer of that base at that night. So he kind of stores this in his mind in his being. I mean, if we're to really take this story at face value, this man was destined to be at the right place at the right time. Because even though he wasn't there at Roswell, he ends up seeing one of the bodies. He ends up getting this responsibility that I talked about earlier to deal with this later on in his life. And it's like this chilling synchronicity of his life right it's like a life synchronicity like we talk about regular <laughs> synchronicity this is like a life synchronicity where ours are so where, much yeah less <laughs> impactful than this <laughs> well but sometimes you have and and when we go into synchronicities uh in a little bit like sometimes sometimes you have something that's sort of life-changing that's connected to other parts of your life in a synchronicity yeah. fashion and i think uh when he by the time he returns to Washington from Germany and he goes to work at the Pentagon in 1961. This is when he starts working for a general Trudeau. And other than seeing that body in 1947, you know, and, and we can see unlike us, sadly, unlike Bob Lazar's story where they erased his records, I believe, and they, they really tried to make that man disappear. Bob Lazar was nobody to the military. Bob Lazar wasn't some war hero who was decorated, who had been in the Korean War, who had worked for senators, and he was nobody. So they just erased him. But here we're talking about somebody who has a paper trail for everything he's saying. Like he was there at that time. Why would somebody make up stories about aliens who had worked for this general and the senator and in the secret intelligence of the government? Like why would it, would you really want to go to your deathbed and, and basically write a book detailing how you were there and you met Mickey Mouse, how like you and Mickey Mouse go back, how you like saw Clifford the Big Red Dog. Like why would you make up some clown story that would basically make you a laughing stock? Like if it weren't true, you know, if you were this kind of a person. And I think that's kind of 
it's true about Bob Lazar. It's true about Corso. It's true about a lot of the, the, the generals that have come forward as part of the disclosure effort that like they, they really have no motivation to put this kind of heat on themselves. And, and cause, cause a lot of the rea the reaction of civilians to this for many years and still is ridicule, mm -hmm. ridicule. So Corso is destined to deal with this at a much deeper level. And I think that when he sees the body, it like really, really messes with him, but he tries to suppress that memory. He basically tries to tell himself that he didn't see it, that it wasn't real, that he doesn't care. He doesn't care. He doesn't want to know. He'll never bring it up again. He just wishes that will basically die <laughs> from his mind. And then he gets this assignment with the Pentagon and Trudeau. So we'll, we'll go into this, but why don't we take this opportunity to discuss a couple synchronicities? So uh, my first synchronicity, I dubbed this one Coincidence Day because my, it started, okay, so the beginning of the day started, my friend Chris bought uh, another one of my friends, Sarah, a puzzle for her birthday um, and he texted me about it and like as he sent me the text like, hey, I just bought Sarah a puzzle for her birthday, I was walking up the street and I passed Sarah on the sidewalk <laughs> as he texted me that and I was like, well, that's weird and I was I was heading up, up the street to like pick something up from a neighbor and the address was uh, 48, that was their address and so I like hugged Sarah and as I was like we, we went our separate ways and as I kept walking up the street, I checked the weather because I was like, oh, it feels kind of nice out because it was pretty, it was like winter, but it was pretty nice out. And it was 48 degrees and I was walking to the address of 48. So I dubbed that whole day Coincidence Day. And then we also won the Broadway lottery for a show later that night. So I was like, oh, <laughs> what does and, it mean? And you won 48 tickets? Yeah, we won Broadway 48 show. Broadway tickets. <laughs> exactly. So so just so people know, synchronicities, how would you define synchronicities, Sydney? It, you, you know, it, it, it's very comparable to like deja vu and like like having something that's happened before, but it's, it's not that specific. It's more like a moment where something significant happens that reminds you or that uh, of something that happened already or or something that is going to happen or you know just the, something that's sending you down the right path that's saying like we're we're headed down you're 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 going the right way you're following all the right steps like signs signs from the universe yeah, signs, signs is the best way to describe it. You see a connection with something that's happening at that moment like you just you just find this you just witness like a sign like of of like the universe so when you have a thought and then you see something that references that thought on television or you 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 had been thinking about this and i mean we'll go into examples synchronicities are the what are the signs of the universe that we're 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 catching on in our own life so we're going to go into a couple of them every episode just a couple and uh and have this little segment for you so so you're so in that story what was the part with the puzzle uh, there was some puzzle. Yeah, my friend bought bought a puzzle for my other friend for her birthday, and I walked by her on the sidewalk as I got that text, being like, "I bought a puzzle for my friend." That day was a puzzle. Okay, you got another one? No, because we're already two and a half minutes in. Okay, well, I I kind of have to mention this, although I'm not going to go into detail, but I believe it was a crazy synchronicity that someone in my family was having surgery, like 
major, major surgery on my birthday. That was insane. And it was somebody very important to me. So I was just like, why is this happening on my birthday? <laughs> like I had to fly out of the country and, and it was just a really insane synchronicity. But it was emergency surgery. It wasn't like planned for your birthday. It wasn't planned, but what are the chances? Like it could have happened on any other day, you know, but, but, and, but, but it turned out to be a blessing because they're doing really well and they recovered. So the fact that it happened on my birthday, wasn't like a cursed thing. You know what I mean? It wasn't like, it wasn't like going to be the worst birthday ever. It turned out to be like maybe the greatest gift. So that was crazy. I had something happen recently where I got an email from my job telling me that this, I couldn't run somebody's information because their birth date was wrong. So I had to look at their identification to see, to find their birthday. And when I looked up and this was something, this email was following me for like a, a few hours and I was like, all right, I got to go look up this person's birthday. And when I looked up their birthday, it was my birthday, Oh, weird. my birthday on that thing. And one other quick one is that it's not really, I don't know how much of a synchronicity it is, but I was playing a video game that's really, really good called inscription. And it is a really trippy, almost occult like card game where you're in this cabin and it's like an eight bit game and you're sacrificing squirrels and animals cards that are like talking to you in order to develop deeper cards. So it's like a deck builder kind of game set in this weird cabin that seems like it's in another dimension or something. And at one point I got to this part of the game where I had to combine two cards and it combined whatever two cards I had two of for me and guess what it created? It created the Mothman card. Whoa. And we'll post it on Instagram because it's really trippy. It was really freaky. It was freaky to see this Mothman card there in front of me. I was just, it chilled me for some reason. I don't know. The game is scary, a little freaky too. So, so that's it. <laughs> so this is a conversation that happens pretty much right away when Corso gets to General Trudeau's office. General Trudeau, he knows General Trudeau. They go back, they, they consider each other friends, but you know, military friends where they maintain rank and everything in a sense, but they're close, you know, things happen in life due to connections and, and relationships. So, okay, so there, here's a conversation that happens in the office when Corso gets there in 1961. Um, general general basically says general shows him a file cabinet says he's in charge of this giant file cabinet he's being a little bit weird about it and so here's what corso says i'll get to those files right away if you like general and uh, i'll write up some preliminary reports on what i think about it it's gonna take you a little longer than that phil trudeau says now he's almost laughing which is something he didn't do very much those days you want to think about this before you start writing any reports. There was really something here he wasn't telling me, says Corso. Is there something else that I should know, General? Actually, Phil, the material in this cabinet is a little different from the run-of-the-mill forward stuff we've seen up till now. Don't know if you've ever seen the intelligence on what we've got here when you were over at the White House, but... 
before you write up any summaries, maybe you should do a little research on the Roswell file. Corso is shocked. His heart sinks. He's like, oh my goodness, what has just come back into my life? He, he's, he, Corso explains that he had through the grapevine heard about Roswell. He had through the grapevine heard things about military hiding information about that era, about people that were privy to secret technology, stuff like that. But he wasn't directly involved with any of this stuff. So when he gets this file, he wants to tear it open like it's Christmas morning. Imagine, imagine having these secrets like, and, and it's just like you're responsible for it. He, he does eventually tear it open that night and he finds like just crazy crap. Basically <laughs> he finds like a shoebox of tangled wires, strange cloth. He finds like a little headpiece looking thing, little wafers that look like Ritz crackers with broken edges. He finds like an assortment of other things and sizes and just like weird shit that doesn't look normal right? It doesn't look like anything he has experience with. And, and so later on, it's, this is a really funny interaction with, with Corso and the general where, where Corso says, what'd you do to me, general? I thought we were friends. That's why I gave this to you, Phil. He said, but he wasn't laughing, wasn't even smiling. You know how valuable this property is. You know what any other agencies would do to get this into their hands? They'd probably kill me. They probably want to kill you anyway, but this makes them even more rabid. The Air Force wants it because they think it belongs to them. The Navy wants it because they want anything that the Air Force wants. The CAA wants it so they can give it to the Russians. What do you want me to do, General? I need a plan from you. Not simply what this property is, but what we can do with it. Something that keeps it out of play. Okay, so here we have gotten to the, the real dessert portion of today's feast the the oreo cookie portion the 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 i wanted to say milk and potatoes at first but that doesn't make milk sense. and potatoes the milk we've gotten to the milk and the potatoes of today's episode <laughs> which is this is my favorite part of this book where he, this guy goes into what he has and what he does with it we've covered what happened in roswell not perfectly well, but we did, but I did. Maybe we'll revisit Roswell and try to do it again and explore other aspects of it. This definitely doesn't cover this entire book. Really what we're covering here is what happened in Roswell? What did they find and what do they do with it? So this gives you a sense of what they found. But before I go into the milky, the potatoes and milk portion, before I go into that. <laughs> I think it's the meat and potatoes, the, the, right? The, the milk steak. I think it's milk steak. Before I go into what what's my favorite part of this book, I'm going to explain something. Basically, and this is actually really important too. Apparently, a Nathan Farragut Twining, General Nathan Twining, he was born October 11th, 19, 1897 and died March 29th, 1982. Apparently, Twining was the one that sort of devised this plan. And we talked about this earlier, so I don't, I'm not going to go into it in great detail, but devised this plan to start hiding this information from the public. 
deny everything, deny it even to the government itself so that every other agency will have no idea that this happened, ridicule it, come up with a cover story. They invented Project Blue Book so they would have some way to document reports. What they weren't telling the people was that there was another branch of the military that was actually taking the, more, the most serious reports from Blue Book and taking them seriously. What they end up with, what the, what the military inherits with this situation is the knowledge that there is another threat in the skies, basically. Other than our fear of another country, there is another group of beings that are around. They, they, they have aircrafts that, can, that are way beyond our technology. They, there's another threat in the skies. So at that point in time, because of the reasons we went into earlier of like, well, if we don't admit to the people that there is a threat, then there's going to be no pressure to deal with it. And we don't know what we're dealing with in the first place. So let's, let's research it. Let's figure this stuff out. Let's figure out what to do. Corso at this point in time inherits this, this machine that was going from 1947, where like things were kind of hidden. The Majestic 12 had come together and apparently fallen apart by this point. Like the Majestic 12 were this group of scientists and military men and people that were put in charge of dealing, basically making the decisions for all of this technology in the beginning. What ends up happening is that even though the Majestic 12 dissolve and there's nobody really in charge anymore, there's no government agency in charge of all the other ones, everything kind of broke up into separate groups of people who were trying to get as much information on alien technology as possible. There's this incredible metaphor that Corso gives about military secrets and how this works. And I think that this is so good when you think about things from the government perspective, because I don't know, it makes this, this really resonated with me. And that's why I think this book is so valuable. It's very easy to sit here and ridicule everything in this book and say, Oh, of course. And how convenient and whatever, and this is bullshit or whatever. But, but I think you would have to be very superficial to not see that there is a lot of valuable information here about the military perspective and about the military perspective on something like this and how they control information. He, he says, there's an old story I once heard about keeping secrets. A group of men were trying to protect their deepest secrets from the rest of the world. They took their secrets and they hid them in a shack whose very location was a secret. But the secret location was soon discovered. And then some of the secrets that they were hiding were discovered. But before every secret could be revealed from that shack, the men quickly built a second shack where they stored those secrets and still kept that location to themselves. Soon the second shack was discovered. The group realized they would have to give up some secrets in order to protect the rest. So again, they moved to build a third shack to protect whatever secrets they could there. This process repeats itself over and over until anybody wanting to find out what secrets they had to begin with had to start at the first shack, work their way from shack to shack. And by the time they, and at some point they would get lost because they would have no idea where to go from there. Where did the secrets go from there? And he says, 
For 50 years, this was the very process by which the secrets of Roswell were protected by various serial incarnations of this ad hoc confederation of top secret working groups through different branches of the government. This is basically the metaphor you have for how information was handled. Like it was hidden from one group to the next to the next. You don't have security clearance for this, for this, for this, for this, until you just have this like mess and like people in the Navy researching things, people in the army researching things. Of course, everybody wants what the other branch has, but they're not sharing information and they're definitely not sharing it with the CIA, according to them, because the CIA, there were tons of Russians in the CIA, according <laughs> to Corso. So he comes up with this plan that first they got to figure out how they got everything. So he begins to research how Roswell happened. And then he, he comes up with a report on what they have. Like, let me take an inventory of everything that I have. First, he researches how they got everything. And so that's how he learns about basically the entire Roswell, who was there at Roswell and where everything went. And then he writes up a report about what do I have exactly? And what can we do with it? You know, and I went into a little bit of what he had. He had like, just like a lot of random stuff, like silvery, a grayish silvery foil-like swath of cloth, artifacts that could not fold or bend. You find something, this is a point in time where I'm like, okay, here we go. Here we go with all the stuff that I'd already kind of heard about, like where fiber optics come from, where all the lasers come from, like all the stuff that I'd heard about for a long time. So these are the things that he found. He comes up with this plan. Let's figure out what we got. What he starts with, with his report of what they have, like what do we have, first of all, before we can figure out what to do with it. He starts with the autopsy reports of the bodies. And at that point in time, David is hooked. <laughs> and finally, I'm like, yes. Who's doing the finally. autopsy? Philip is doing it himself? No, these were reports, I think. Oh, so he these are part of the files that he's going through, autopsy reports. These are part of the gotcha. files. So this is this is this is important to bring up also that in 1961, he became the chief of the Pentagon's foreign technology desk at Army Research. Okay. The plan that Corso came up with to deal with this stuff is tied to his job because what he did was he, once he identified what he had, he separated it and gave it to different researchers under the guise of being foreign technology. So he didn't tell anybody that they were that it was alien technology, even though that any scientist that sees something that's not of this earth will question that, right? But but he, everything was placed under the guise of foreign technology. So it's the perfect cover in a way because nobody will ever know that it's alien stuff. It really is just like we recovered this, figure out what this is. You're not going to be asking questions. You're not going to be going up to the generals and the everything and asking them, what is this? I demand to know what, you know, that happens in movies, you know, it's called in real the life, internet. they will, the, in real life, they'll make you disappear for asking questions like that. So basically their plan was to label everything as foreign technology, not tell anybody where it was from. And part of the reason that they did this, you, you see in this book, I encourage everybody to read this. Like the main motivation that Trudeau had and Corso had in, in what they did with this stuff. It basically, if we're to believe that they labeled it as foreign technology 
and they separated it out to different people, right? Different, different groups, different contractors is that they knew that if the CIA, if, if any other branch of the military got their hands on these files, cause imagine this file cabinet, just like there after all these years with this stuff in it that hadn't been touched, like somehow this thing was overlooked, you know, and it, it ended up in their hands and they didn't want anybody else to get their hands on it because then they would just hide it. They would hide it and they would make it disappear. And again, it's being funneled into these secret groups where nobody's sharing information. Something that Lazar, Bob Lazar touched upon where you don't have scientists communicating with each other so that they can figure out what this is that you need people to communicate. That's how you have world breakthroughs because scientists communicate on a global scale. But in this situation, they were like, how do we get this stuff out there? How do we get the right people working on it before anybody comes and takes it away from yeah. us? And I think that if we're to believe the book, they succeeded because they succeeded according to them because they weren't there for that long. So that's one thing that I question about the book is how long they were in research and development and how much time they had for this and how much time it took. Maybe it didn't take that much time. Maybe you just, you know, after this preliminary report, you just gave this stuff out and it did its, and it did its own magic, you know, by, by having these people work on the technology, but okay. Now we're getting to the, the part that I wanted to get to. I, the autopsy report, it, it says in the book somehow, somewhere where they, who had the experiments. I think it was either Walter Reed or one of these, one of these bases where they, their, their top doctors were looking at it. But basically the doctor autopsy reports, what he's saying is like, even if you had the bodies, like he had photographs of the bodies, but he said that the photographs were not that useful. They're, they're, they're useful for somebody who's curious about them, but they don't tell you anything. Right. Like, what do they, what does it tell you? It could be, it could be photographs of mannequins. Like, you know, it doesn't matter if you have a photograph of an alien being, that's not the same as an autopsy report. So that made sense to me. Oh, well, the medical reports found that the organs, bones, and skin were of a different composition than huh. ours. The beings heart and lungs are bigger than a human's. The bones are thinner, but they seem stronger as if the atoms are aligned for a different tensile strength. The skin shows a different atomic alignment in the way that it appears. It seems that the skin is supposed to protect the vital organs, let's say from cosmic rays or gravitational forces. Everything about this being is similar to us, more similar than different in a way, right? It has lung and heart. It has, you know, it has these things, but they, but these things work differently and, and why they work differently might be a clue to what it is. So they refer to the bodies as EBEs. They're extraterrestrial biological entities. EBEs. They, they it's a, it's an extraterrestrial, right? Or it's from another dimension or whatever it is. They consider it an extraterrestrial. It's not of this earth, but it's biological. It's biological. It has a heart. It has lungs. It has tissue. It's not made out of metal. They, they, the, actually the doctors are more surprised by the similarities they see between mm. humans than the differences. Like, does it look more evolutionary than like a different species kind of thing? Kind of. I mean, it's connected. They're connected to us. They're, they're similar to us, but they're different. And he goes into this in detail. He talks about the lungs. The lungs are a lot bigger, right? But he talks about how runners have 
bigger hearts and lungs because especially people who live in the mountains or by the hills because their lung capacity gets greater from what they do compared to people at sea level natural athletes that have like a different muscle alignment because of, rather compared to people who aren't athletes mm-hmm. he says that we might have with the ebe's beings that were genetically engineered to adapt to long space voyages within an electric magnetic wave environment. And he has reasons for this. He, he actually concludes and he believes his, his assessment of this is that these might be more similar instead of thinking of them as humanoid, like human, like these are the, these are not the beings. These are humanoid robots oh, interesting. that were engineered to travel to our planet for like a scouting mission of some kind. But they're, but they so are these biological. These are not the actual. They're not, they're not robots. They're, but they were like, you're saying they're like genetically engineered for this trip. So like the, 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 the ones who created them might not look like that. Exactly. Gotcha. And they're biological robots in a way. So that's kind of mind blowing. You don't see too many movies about biological robots, you know? You don't see that. I don't think that as a society we have an easy time imagining what that even means. Why would you even make a biological robot? That's a main question that I had. Like why would you why wouldn't you make him out of metal? Like why does why does he even have to have a face? You know, like, I don't get why he has to have a face. Like, there's obviously more questions than answers. It's not like I'm going to be like, well, this is why he has a face. What he goes into even more or more so like is, is I think it's, it's even more fascinating because these creatures seem remarkably well adapted for space travel. They have a very slow metabolism. So for them, they basically don't have to work very hard to sustain their bodies. That means that their hearts beat a lot less. They don't have to, their bodies don't have to work that hard to drive the thin, milky, almost lymphatic like fluid around their bodies. They have a reduced capacity circulatory system. Their biological clock just beats a lot slower. So for them, they're able to deal with time on a very different level than we are. Like we're, we're dealing with gravity. Like our bodies are working really hard, pumping blood really hard to deal with this like mortal life that we have. But these things are just kind of like almost just sustaining themselves for like this slow process that they have. They're only four feet tall. Right. So their large lungs occupy a greater percentage of their chest cavity. It's almost like they're, they're designed to breathe and exist for long periods of time on this craft. They're not, this might be why he, this is definitely tied to why he concluded that they might not be like the real, they might be like humanoid robots basically like, because they have no waste and no food. And this is something that Bob Lazar brings up, I think, also when he describes the ship that he saw that he didn't see any cafeteria. They didn't find any cool looking Star Wars food. They don't see any signs of how these things go to the bathroom. Nothing. No bathroom, no food. Hmm. None of that. Then it makes me wonder what the point of the mouth was. Like, is that just for communicating or because if they're not ingesting food or. Do they have buttholes? I know. I don't think so. Hmm. There's a source that I have that had once explained Roswell as they're travelers from the future 
who were on a mission, right? They were never supposed to crash. We were never supposed to recover that technology. And I was like, was like, okay, interesting. When I was reading this, I was shocked, absolutely shocked. Cause I thought I would never hear about that again. I thought I would never hear that theory. Cause that theory is like awesome, but very what, ridiculous. That they don't in a way. Like, eat or waste? No, no, no. That Roswell, oh. they're actually travelers from the future oh. that, that, that crash landed by mistake. And that's how we got that technology. We were never meant to, we were never meant to find those things. Like it was never meant to I happen. I definitely think it wasn't meant to happen. It doesn't seem that way, right? It crashes. Everything about it just strikes like this. They were just really lucky that they crashed in 1947 before we had the technology that we have now. Because like, shit would have you know hit the fan much quicker (laughs) if if it was nowadays. Well, I think he goes into describing how there is like a whole branch of government dedicated. There's a there's a group of people trained in the government to show up if something crashes and have probably shown up to other crashes and they 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 handle this a lot differently than this story went down. You know, this story went down in sort of a ramshackle 1947 farmhouse, <laughs> I don't know, just like a ridiculous fashion, you know, like a a very unprepared military for this, but now it handles, it happens differently. Right. The people who did the autopsy are, were part of Walter Reed. They're pathologists with Walter Reed hospital. It, they, they discovered that the creature's heart seems to function as a blood storage facility. So it seems to store a lot of their blood or liquid, whatever they use. And it's also a pumping muscle. So it, it, their, their heart didn't work the same way that our hearts did. It seemed to be storing do our hearts not store blood? I guess they just I'm pump not sure. it. We have a four-chambered heart. This is not a four-chambered heart. Um, they seem to have had an internal diaphragm-like muscles that worked less hard than a human heart muscle. So it almost seems like they were designed to exist in a lot less gravity than we exist. So just as camels store water, this creature seemed to store whatever atmosphere it was breathing in its lungs. Hmm. So it's almost like it's storing whatever it needs within itself, um, which is super interesting. So you kind of get this image of this being that's sort of recycling its own fluid slowly within its body, you know, recycling its atmosphere within itself, its waste within itself. It doesn't need to eat. I mean, this is not a human. It almost, it sounds like something that you would find in the ocean, like, you, you know, like asexual little like barnacles that are able to just like really slowly reproduce and they just like they, they can stay alive as long as their biome is, you know, proper and healthy and whatever. It just, yeah, it doesn't even sound close to a human. <laughs> you know, when, when maybe, maybe, I mean, if imagine if they were, if there were beings from the future sending these things out. You could almost imagine, like, what if they just knew the stereotype of aliens that we have? And they were just like, we're just going to put these things in there in case it crashes so that they think that there are these. It's almost like a deceptive thing. Like, they're going to pretend like these things are the ones in charge. Yeah. And, you know, they're just giving us something that we sort of expect anyway to see, even if it's not real. 
So maybe that's tied to what it is. But also, he kind of goes into what what their role is on the ship, which is really interesting. So I'll just go through this a little quicker. So um, they're they're skeletons. Their their bones are thinner compared to human bones. The pathologists speculated that the bones are more flexible than human bones. That the bones kind of acted like shock absorbers mm. on the ship. So all of this is tied to space travel cosmic rays, gravitational forces, the impact, the awful impact that this would have on the human body, like that you cannot sustain, like these things maybe were made for this, you know, they talk about like what goals these creatures could possibly have, like, what would they be doing here? And he kind of speculates something I mentioned earlier that, you know, they found these creatures, they were probably tossed out of their aircraft unprotected into gravity that they weren't prepared for. The exposure to our gravity probably caused them to panic, right? They're suffocating. One of them freaks out, tries to run. That one gets shot. Maybe maybe this craft was some sort of a scout surveillance ship that was never meant to depart that long from its mothership, or maybe it was literally like just sent here to do its job. It was never meant to land. You know, maybe it was never meant to land. It was, they were never meant to leave the craft. You know, that they, one of the technology, one of the pieces of technology they found in the ship was they found that these creatures had a film over their eyes that was like night vision. Oh, weird. And apparently they reversed engineered that to turn it into night vision, even though we were trying to develop things like that. Cause they're the pathologists were saying that they tried putting on the, this is like so fantastic, but you know, uh, fantastical in a way, but like, I love this, I, but I love rolling with this and just imagining this stuff and the, you know, the world is too, cra this is too crazy to be true. And yet it is, I believe in a lot of ways, not everything, but a lot of it, you know, is, is just. It makes sense. You know, a lot of a lot of what Corso is saying just kind of makes sense. And for me, this book just kind of clicks and it clicks after reading all of this other stuff and seeing somebody just be like almost confirm like a lot of and maybe that's part of why you could be skeptical because it kind of confirms a lot of beliefs right. that you might have. But it does it. It just it's just a puzzle piece that fits so well with what we know. I was gonna say I wonder if I wonder if these beings were like like had never actually left that ship, like you said, like they were never meant to land. And I don't even think they really did land because it, it was more of a crash, right? So it was definitely like an accident, yeah. wasn't intentional. And and maybe they were so freaked out because they had never like spent any time off of this ship. This is where they were born, created, raised, whatever, because their bodies were so fit for the purpose of space travel and being on that ship and not like, like you said, like on in a gravitational force or, you know, breathing in oxygen, that kind of stuff. So it's interesting to think about. Very interesting. What confuses me a little bit is that like, why would they, like just this idea of like why they, translate emotion like they say like the officers describe one of the main one of the more striking things that they concluded about these beings was that they had they had this telepathic ability like the size of their heads they had these headbands a lot of the officers described that they could feel the pain of these creatures they could kind of feel what they were thinking and feeling without it being actually put into words and like but why would a biological robot experience pain, you know, or whatever? And like, it's just, it's interesting because I wonder if you were to create a legion of AI, right? And that, that, 
that AI, you would maybe you would create it in your own image, right? Maybe we are created in the image of something mm. else, like a higher life form, right? And 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 so you you would do the same if you were creating a race of beings that you wanted to serve you and and go on these flights and stuff. But maybe like in order for you to communicate with it on these like rudimentary levels and to get information, maybe it has some capacity to feel and to communicate emotion and communicate distress. You know, maybe there are advantages to not making it human or whatever these beings are that, that deployed these creatures in 1947, but like, but to make it enough like you that you can communicate with it properly if that makes sense or, or and relate to it or empathize with it. Some kind of, yeah, deeper energy connection. Well, you wouldn't want to make it so fucking <laughs> different from you that you would feel weirded out, even communicating mm -hmm. with it. Right? Like that's something that we learned from 2001, a space odyssey where you have this concept of how the computer enjoying chess enjoying conversation having there's you know we we see in a lot of science fiction and a lot of maybe ai being developed that there's this need to create empathy and to create some way if not for ourselves to feel better but so that it it's not this cold machine right. you know it that it has feelings and can communicate you know and can understand us you know, because ultimately we're the ones trying to control those things. One of the things now here is what I find so fascinating about these beings is that they had this one piece of protective covering, like a jumpsuit or outer skin. They basically have a very thin layer of skin. That's like their spacesuit. Like imagine a thin, a, a membrane basically, instead of spacesuit, it's like a membrane that's covering their whole body that has a great tensile strength and flexibility. And it kind of goes lengthwise. And it, the, the examiners were describing it as tough as a spider's web. Hmm. And it basically spun all the way around the creature and seized up around it. So it was skin tight. And he, he describes that once he finally understood such a crazy thing, but like he finally understood what this protective layer could be for when he was buying a Christmas tree years later. And he saw the way, you know how you, they, that they put the Christmas trees in, the in these like in the netting yeah. and it kind of, sh you know, it like shoots them all up and contains their, all their branches, yeah. you know? So their, their branches are, protected. are not yeah. broken, but they're protected. So he described how maybe the lengthwise alignment of the fibers of the suit were able to protect the beings against low energy cosmic rays that would bombard a craft, you know? So it's kind of genius. Instead of having this big bulky suit, you would have this membrane that would just cover your entire body yeah. and, and protect you on that kind of detailed level. Hmm. So they weren't naked, but they were covered in like a skin membrane. Like yeah. Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> I wonder if there was some decency to the membrane. Like if the membrane had like a little loincloth area or it was just like, you know, they didn't have sex organs, you know, they didn't have, they didn't eat. They didn't go to the bathroom. Maybe they were robots, you know, maybe they were biological entities that 
you know, or, or they don't reproduce, they don't eat, period, you know? Well, if they're, if they're recycling other things in their body, they might as well just recycle their own waste and turn it back into energy and recycle it again. They might as well. I mean, it's perplexing because I have heard that aliens don't eat and they don't reproduce. And we are moving into a society that doesn't need sex to reproduce and maybe one day doesn't need food either, you know? Maybe maybe all we need is our connection to our computers and our interfaces and and our spider webs, you know, and somewhat. Eventually, on an evolutionary scale, you would lose your desire, your need. You would lose those organs, right? Or or I don't know. I think there is something to this idea that he concluded that they're humanoid robots, but they they we could be looking at entities that don't have those things to begin with anyway. So they have these low metabolisms where they can survive extended periods of time. They talk about the mental communication that we discussed, that the witnesses of Roswell heard no words, but they felt the profound sadness of these beings, which that really like, that really is confounding. You know, the one thing that they had was they had these headbands on them and these thin headbands, no wires, no buttons, no nothing. Like the, the, the least cool headbands ever, right? Like I'm like, just picturing like a sweatband. Yeah, but they're not thinking in terms of like Apple products where they try to come up with a newer and cooler phone or like a new pair of sneakers with different colors and different buttons and new computer. Like everything that we have is designed to look different from the thing before it. But these headbands seem like they're just the most simple thing that like... They call them headbands, but they were devices that look like a headband, but it was neither an adornment or a decoration. It was like a flexible plastic. It was known to have electrical conductors or sensors. It was fitted around the alien's head, just above the ears where the skull was. Some people tried to put it on at right field. The, they tried to put this on. Um, well, I don't know if I was actually at that. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't remember if the pathologists were at Roswell. They tried to put it on and they described seeing crazy colors oh. and it, crazy flashes in their mind. So they believe that it somehow tripped up signals in the brain. One officer of the 509th gingerly slipped this thing <laughs> over his head and tried to figure out what it did. At first, it did nothing. There were no buttons, no switches. But then he ends up seeing like crazy colors and it's like not, not good for your brain. Instant drugs. But what he kind of concludes also is that maybe you have this being, you have this membrane, you have this headband. And you have a vehicle that has no propulsion system. This is, this is a big theme now in ufology, this idea that there's no propulsion system. Bob Lazar talks about this. He talks about maybe that these beings, maybe they were literally the brain of this ship. They were the brain of the ship. Oh. Maybe they were one with the ship, he describes. Almost, it reminds me of Pacific Rim where the pilots become like one with the robots like that they're Rangers. controlling. I don't know if it's like, it, maybe it's like Power Rangers. Yeah, I guess, right? I didn't I see know. Pacific I don't know. Rim. I don't know the but... lore there. <laughs> so in Pacific Rim, there, there are these two pilots. They, they combine their minds and they, they basically are the brain of this giant robot that fights monsters, like this kaiju, this kaiju thing. 
this is directly and i was like did guillermo del toro read this stuff and like come up with his own idea for it but i'm sure it's been in manga and stuff for a long time or anime also but you know it's it's this idea that their brain waves are the guidance system and and like maybe the headbands and the beings have like an electronic signature that's being used he says imagine transportation devices imagine a car right or a flying vehicle in which the key to the ignition is a digitized code derived from your electroencephalographic signature and it's automatically read upon donning some sort of sensorized headband he said that the craft had no controls it has it had no like wires or buttons or anything but it did have a place for them to put their hands you kind of get this picture of the craft being piloted by them, their big mm-hmm. brains, their hands, the craft. The, maybe he, he goes into like what the craft could be. And he says that maybe the craft is it's it's controlled by these beings. The one thing that they, they couldn't find where the engine was. Right. But they figured like, what if what if this craft just stored all of its energy? It just had a battery, right? It was a battery basically. And it was just like able to travel for the amount of time that it was necessary for it to be out. So it didn't have to have an engine or anything. It just had all that energy within it. It had these mechanisms to change its, you know, electromagnetic waves to its benefit. Or it runs off of the beans energy. Like they transfer energy into the ship. God, that would be so crazy. I wonder if what we learned from Bob Lazar about element 115 is a breakthrough of theirs having found that on the ship later on, you know, or on other ships, or maybe this is just not like a ship that's destined for a lot of space travel. So it didn't have that element on it. And it was just like more of one of these little reconnaissance ships that wasn't meant to be out for that long. Right. But I love this idea that there's this synchronicity between the being, the headband, and the spacecraft. And it's all just like one thing that was made to travel and never meant to party with people or get out of that craft, you know? Um, Apparently, Trudeau had relationships with army contractors and different companies that were already working with the military on different technology. And this is something that I'd heard before that some of this technology went to Bell Labs, IBM, Monsanto, Dow, General Electric, Hughes. Oh, wow. They basically, the R&D separated everything they could so that it could be worked on so that it couldn't be stolen from a government agency or thrown away. And this is what led to a lot of our advancement in technology. It's, it's something I've heard before um, from multiple sources. So it's interesting to find all these sources in this book. You know, he, he speculates on what the EBEs could want, according to the military. And it's freaky stuff. I mean, it's like... There's three scenarios that the military kind of concludes initially that they were the EBs were simply conducting scientific experiments on earthly forms, collecting whatever specimens they could without causing too much disruption or alerting us. Two, the EBs were actively collecting specimens and conducting experiments so to determine whether this was a hospitable environment for them to inhabit, and any disruption they caused was of no concern to them. 
all the experimentation and specimen collection were a prelude to some kind of infiltration or invasion of our planet. We did not know their motives, but we could only assume the worst, and therefore we needed to defend ourselves. For the purpose of invasion later on, three, which is something that I've heard, and it's something I did not want to forget, so I'm glad I remember this. I heard a theory that the cattle mutilations and a lot of their experiments were simply intimidation tactics to scare us. Kind of like for them to just scare us and put fear into this world about them so that we are afraid of them. And so that it creates this narrative around which, you know, regular people are afraid of them, you know, so that as a society, we're afraid of them. And you know what? It ties into the narrative of Hollywood too. Like you see so many movies about aliens that are evil and like scary and like horror more in the horror realm of things than in the realm of like, Oh, these are beings that we're interacting with. So you have this, you have all this information and you have this picture of the military realizes that we have a threat. They have to learn about it. They have to figure it out. They have, they want to develop the technology because they know that developing this technology is not only important for us facing threats on the planet, but like, how are we going to defend ourselves against them? Like, are we going to fight them with radar? Like, are we going to, they talk about, he talks about how they wanted to build a base on the moon, but that didn't happen. He talks about how NASA became a, a government agency and how NASA hid a lot of its information on UFOs, but, you know, agrees to work on the government with some stuff relating to UFOs, but how NASA didn't believe that they could do their own like normal missions and also be like surveilling aliens and all this stuff. So it's like these two different agendas, right? NASA is supposed to advance us forward as far as like space travel and everything. But at the same time, like, you know, they're trying to hide these things. And, and you know what, this, this whole idea of this NASA sort of having two agendas and um, hiding their own secrets will tie into a book that we're going to cover called intersect. And a former NASA astronomer breaks his silence about UFOs. That's a book we're going to cover later this season. And, um, and you know what? This is what I'll end with, which is just that, like, it's, it makes sense when you look at John Keel, when we cover that book by Marion, what's his name? Marion Rudnick. When we cover other other intelligent people that realize that, oh, the government's keeping secrets from us. And it's like, yeah, the government has literally been keeping secrets, but this is why. And it makes sense from the government's perspective. It makes sense if you're in power in the government. But uh, something he also talks about is that the government's plan was also this soft disclosure. So like, let people know over time, little bits of information, they release information that's really ridiculous and they deny other things so that you're never going to believe the the reports that are more ridiculous than others. There are things here that we don't know yet. And and we'll, we'll probably have to come back to this, this book and other Roswell information and other government programs, because we don't know, like he alludes to the fact that the government has literally been working with these alien groups and communicating with them for a long time. This was only the beginning of their basically realizing that these things are exist and communicating with them. So we don't know how deep these secrets go. 
you know, and I, that's something that I would like to read more about. But it's just interesting to hear this from the government's side because you're just like, damn, like John Keel, he knew, he knew it, you know, he knew that they were hiding this stuff. Like, and, and this poor astronomer in, in terms of intersect, like he ends up, he ends up realizing that their NASA is hiding secrets, something he never suspected, something he never suspected. It's the poor, intelligent researchers and the talented people that get drawn into this mess that end up realizing that this has been covered up all along. But maybe this information has always been there in front of us and we just have to come to terms with it. Knowledge is power. I I, I understand why the government would want to keep certain information from public knowledge. And we've talked about this before in terms of fear and, and outbursts and, you know, like wrongful uh, interpretation. But, uh, you know, if, if, if we yeah. want to keep advancing our technologies and things and we know that uh, that these other beings have the ability to do that, wouldn't wouldn't you want to create less fear based around them and more of a sense of uh, future potential, you know, something like that. And maybe that is something they're working on and they're just not letting us know. And so the whole idea of fear is to like, (laughs) let the peasants fear them and we'll work together with them. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I think fear is just such a good tool for controlling us but you have all of these military people who have come forth and said this is real that they're you know you have so many reports of scary government officials coming to threaten people and cover things up and it makes so much sense when you think about how they hide their secrets and what they do yeah i mean i i get what the government has done but at this point i think that the cat is out of the bag you know i want to use as many cat metaphors (laughs) as i can in my life so I think the cat's out of the bag. I think we're, as a society and as a civilization, we're realizing that if our own government is not telling us the truth, you you look, remember we, when we did UFOs, we realized the French government is way more open about this stuff. Like you see that this stuff is real. It's popping up in all kinds of places. There have been a lot of books on the subject. There have been a lot of people that on their deathbed or or before they, they want to they come out of retirement and they're like, screw it. If right, you're going to kill right. me, you're going to kill me. And, you know, they, they come out with their story and it's like, you know, we're, we're not trying to prove to you that aliens exist. Like, I'm not interested in that. Like, but I am interested in going beyond that so we can have conversations about what's going on. Thank you for dining with us. Hold those cosmic appetites for next time. Reach out to us on Twitter and follow us on Instagram at Cosmic Feast.